<sighs> okay, I'm ready. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning, but before I, uh, before I get there, I just wanted to mention that. So if you want to go ahead and turn there or poke your buttons or do whatever it is you need to do to be ready for that. If you want to be in the Pew Bible that's in front of you, it's on page 771. But before I get there, um, I want to give a quick shout out to all my teacher buddies. You made it. Happy summer. Uh, and also, since I'm on this stage, now seems as good a time as any to give a quick shout out to somebody that I respect. Robert Casey, are you here? Is he here? He, I mean, it's summertime, so he may have disappeared. I don't know. Okay, that's, I wondered if that was going to be a thing. Well, Robert Casey, if you don't know already, Robert Casey is an assistant principal at Brian, uh, Rudder High School in Bryan ISD, and this last week he was named Bryan ISD's Administrator of the Year. And so, I mean, that's, that's worth something. So we're proud of him. Shout out to Robert. <clears throat> so welcome to Pentecost. As you may or may not know, Pentecost is the seventh Sunday that happens after Easter Sunday, and it coincides with the Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks, and because it happened seven weeks after Passover. The word Pentecost itself is actually Greek and means 50th, because if you look back at Leviticus 23, there's a celebration for first harvest on a Sabbath, that's a Saturday. And that coincides with Passover, and then you count off the days, and you celebrate again on the 50th day, or the Pentecost day. And so here we are, exactly seven weeks after Easter Sunday, Pentecost days since the Passover Sabbath. Welcome to pa uh, Pentecost. And, and here and now, in the last seven weeks, we've been looking at this series called So What?, where we've been looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and how that matters. And today on Pentecost, we're actually talking from Acts chapter 2 and the first Pentecost that happened after the resurrection. Wasn't the first Pentecost. All my life growing up, I thought Pentecost happened, like was inaugurated in Acts chapter 2. It's the first Pentecost. But actually, no, it was a thing long before that. It was just the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. So here we go, Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, oh, they've had too much wine. 
And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Would you all please pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray this morning that the words I am using are yours, not mine. I pray that we are soft-hearted to hear what you are telling us. And I pray for you to be glorified here this morning. Amen. All my life, I have believed in one way or another that words matter. From my youngest years, uh, my dad, like all dads everywhere, he had sayings that he used. And um, one of them that really sticks in my mind is the saying, English is funny, it means what it says. And he would always pull that gem out when either I or one of my siblings misspoke or brought confusion into a conversation, which I'll be honest, we were kids, it happened a lot. And so that, that phrase is kind of stuck in my head. And I used to really not like it. But uh, I've grown, and as I've grown, I've really come to appreciate it and even love it. And even though I still to this day, I can't bring myself to say it out loud, it doesn't keep me from thinking it. And the place where it happens most, English is funny, it means what it says, is in my job teaching elementary art students. Now, since I am an educator, I came prepared today, and I actually have a little pop quiz for you. Here it is. Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, what is this thing? So think about that for a minute. I'll read the answers out to you. A, a 3D shape. B, a form. C, a drawing. Or D, a cube. What is that thing? Okay, well, let's, let's see. Click it forward one. So it's not a 3D shape. All right, one more. Oh, not a form. Anybody disappointed? One more. Oh, it, the correct answer is C. Did anybody get that right? Okay, a couple people. All right. How many of you guys, honestly, how many of you guys thought that it was 3D shape? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, thank you for being honest. In my classroom, in, in, in the things that I deal with and the people that I deal with as an elementary art teacher, everybody comes to my classroom and they're talking about, oh, cool, Mr. V, look, I learned how to draw a 3D shape. And I'm looking at them and I'm going, there is no such thing as a 3D shape. 3D shapes do not exist. A shape is a two-dimensional object. It's flat. It's an enclosed space on, in two dimensions, and it has an inside and an outside. That's what a shape is. A three-dimensional object that has an enclosed space and an inside and an outside, like this, has a different name. We call this a form. Shape, form. Two different names for two totally different things. Now, I ask you, where did this word 3D shape come from? Does anybody know? Because I know. You know who talks about 3D shapes? Math teachers. Math teachers talk about 3D shapes, and they do it all the time. Now, math teachers, I'm not knocking you. I finally figured it out. A long time ago, it really irked me. I was like, oh, get it right. But I finally figured it out. It's just a difference in purpose. It's a difference in purpose. Math, uh, math teachers, the visual isn't the most important thing. To them, the visual is just a means to organize the numbers and the measurements 
so that you can manipulate them and do your mathy things with it and get it in the, get them in the right equations and get a correct answer. And that totally makes sense to me. I understand that now. Not knocking you. It's just that our purposes is different. Math teachers don't care if the visual is beautiful. They don't care if it's drawn correctly. They don't even care if it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional. They can use either one interchangeably. And so that's how you come across these things like 3D shapes. Now for me, two-dimensional, a shape is completely different from a 3D form. For me, I have to differentiate between those two things. Because if you're doing shape, you're talking about a flat surface like a piece of paper or a canvas or a wall. Kids, you K through two kids who are still in here, do not draw on the wall unless you have your parents' permission. See, art teacher. Flat surfaces for shapes. And you use things, tools like pencils, markers, paintbrushes, your finger, a pair of scissors, a printer hooked up to a computer. Those are things that create shapes. This, this form, this uses things like cardboard, wood, steel, aluminum, clay. These are sculpture things. Totally different processes, and because of that, we have two different words. And I don't care if this thing is six inches or eight inches. That doesn't matter to me. All I care is, hey, can you see it in the back? It's the visual part that's most important to me. So math teachers, they care about the numbers. I care about the visual aspects of it. And the volume and the perimeter of all the faces, couldn't care less. It's purpose. And so we have this confusion that happens between math teachers and art teachers. And back in, you know, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem during uh, Pentecost, the confusion was even worse because there you didn't... Math teachers and I supposedly, I'm pretty sure, speak English together. But we still have that confusion. And there, in, in ancient Jerusalem, you had dozens of languages being spoken. Which, by the way, why did that happen? Because God made it that way. Which brings me to my first point. God's purpose never changes. Why did God confuse the language of people at the Tower of Babel? Because otherwise, well, let me back up half a step. God brought all these different languages into the world. Because if you look back in Genesis chapter 11, the whole world at that time had one language, one common speech. And the people were saying, hey, let's build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language... They have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And so he ends up confusing their languages, and the building of the city stops. Why does God do this? Because nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And if you think about that and you look at the unwritten reason underneath that, if they can do anything they want and nothing's impossible for them, why would they need God? And so God's purpose to bring people into relationship with himself doesn't change and he gives them this confused language so that they might, in their inability to talk to each other, come to rely on God. 
His purpose never changes. Paul talked about a thorn in his side, and God's response was, hey, my grace is sufficient. Depend on me. Uh, Like Kent mentioned, been reading through the book of Jeremiah recently, and I'll tell you, it is a real downer of a book. Over and over and over, Jeremiah talks about how these invaders are going to come, and they're going to knock down the wall of Jerusalem and enter the city and kill men, women, and children and burn the temple down and steal all the stuff out of it. And whoever they don't kill, they're going to haul off into captivity. Wow. Yay. Why would God do that? Well, the part that's not easily seen is that The nation of Israel had gotten so far removed, they had pulled themselves away from God to the point that they were worshiping all kinds of other gods, like Dagon and sacrificing their children to these idols. I mean, how twisted is that? And God took them in that place, however far gone they were, and he was working to bring them back to him. It's amazing how many times in the book of Jeremiah you see the phrase, So I will be your God, and you will be my people. God's purpose never changes. And now, in Acts chapter 2, God's purpose comes full circle in a very elegant and ironic way. He brings fire down to rest on the disciples' heads, and in the same way that he confused languages thousands of years prior... He does the exact opposite on Pentecost and miraculously makes it possible for people who speak dozens of different confusing languages to hear the announcement that God's plan to bring people into relationship with himself is now complete. God's purpose never changes. Whether he's confusing languages or bringing languages into focus, his purpose never changes. Hallelujah. The second point I want to bring out this morning is that God uses the most unlikely people. It says that utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, my brain, when I see that, I, uh, <laughs> I read that as, aren't they all just like uneducated heathen Galileans? Rahab was just a prostitute. Esther was just a common teenager. Ruth was just a Moabite widow. Gideon was just some weenie hiding from the Midianites. David was a shepherd, and Moses was a murderer with a speech impediment. Over and over throughout the Bible, God uses the least likely of people to bring his unchanging purpose about, and to this day, that has not changed. I mean, take me, for example. I'm an elder in this church, and I'm standing here in the pulpit bringing the sermon at the A&M Church of Christ. Me. A graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. I love you guys. You never fail me. (laughs) If that doesn't convince you, I'm an overweight public school art teacher. And you know what they say about teachers, right? Those who can't do, teach. And not only am I a public school teacher, I'm a public school teacher in the art room, the least important room in the whole entire school. I have heard the words, it's just art, more times than I care to count in my career. 
If that doesn't convince you, I'm somebody who has spent the majority of his life listening to Satan's lies that I am not an okay person, that I'm subpar, and that I'm doomed to fail. And if you could hear the self-talk in my head, the things that my brain says to me inside, if that were out loud, it would make Martin Scorsese blush. I have brutalized myself with perfectionism that was based in a fear that I'm not good enough. And when Bible characters like Moses and Gideon continually ask God, wait, me? You mean me? Why are you talking to me? I get that. They're speaking my language. And if that doesn't convince you, I'm somebody who, because of that crippled self-image, I found coping mechanisms I used to numb that pain as a child. And those same coping mechanisms, they grew and grew as I grew, and they blossomed, and they flowered into wretched, shameful, full-fledged addictions as an adult. I knew I wasn't the husband I was supposed to be. I knew I wasn't the son or the father I was supposed to be. I knew God hated me. I mean, why not? I hate myself. I was so completely riddled with guilt and shame that I eventually even started thinking about suicide, convinced that the people around me would be better off, and that God would be happier having me out of the way. Now, just to be clear, again, these are lies from Satan, and I get that. And I'm going to pause the sermon right there and step aside and go, hey, <clears throat> if you're thinking about suicide, please reach out and talk to someone. Don't listen to Satan's lies. Talk to someone you trust. Come talk to me. Call the A&M Christian Counseling Center, or if nothing else, pick up your phone and dial 988. That stuff is not a joke. And there is hope. Please keep listening. So God has taken this miserable, broken shell of a soul, so filled with utter hopelessness, this tea sip, and he's using me now as an elder of this church. And I'm a man who can stand in front of you in this pulpit on Pentecost and say with absolute glee that God saves and he works miracles in the lives of people in the here and the now. You want to talk about unlikely people, I'm the epitome of unlikely people. And if you're sitting here in your pew or on your couch, I see you online streamer people, love you. <clears throat> if you're sitting there and the first word that pops into your mind is, but I want to get you to my third point. There were scoffers then too. In verse 13, some people looked at all this stuff that was happening right in front of their face, and they said, oh, they're drunk. Now, I've always found that kind of funny. I don't know if you've ever met a drunk person, but I have. Drunk people are more difficult to understand, not easier. But I digress. <clears throat> it's been my experience that living here in America, especially here in Texas, especially, especially here in Brazos County, Pretty rare for us to be actively made fun of for being Christians. 
persecution doesn't happen here a whole lot. But there are, there are still plenty of people who scoff at the power of the Holy Spirit. Most often it's in their own lives, not the lives of others. Most often I think it comes in the form of that vicious self-talk that I was just talking about a moment ago. And right now, there, I guarantee you, there are people in this room who are thinking things like, well, but I don't have a miracle story like that. But I have this sin in my life that I just can't kick. I mean, this is all the stuff that Kent was just talking about, right? I'm not good enough to share Jesus. People will think I'm a hypocrite, but I don't know enough Bible. There's a good Church of Christ answer for you, right? But I don't have time. But I'm not worthy. But what if people knew the real me? But Charles, you don't understand. As bad as your story is, I'm dealing with fill in the blank. There's a million different ways that our world is broken and Satan has brought evil into it. People were scoffers then too. They were afraid. They were afraid of what they were seeing happen right in front of them. And they used a fear-filled excuse to deny the power of the Spirit as it happened right in front of their face. Each of those excuses, and every excuse in my opinion, comes from one place, fear. And fear only comes from one place. Satan is lying to you, just like he lied to me. But the Spirit is calling you to stand up to raise your voice and to address the crowd. To address the crowd with transparency, humility, and to be real with your weaknesses. Now this, the title of this sermon is Pentecost, Arrival of the Spirit. And I don't choose those words lightly. I mean, remember, words matter to me. English is funny. I chose the word arrival because, in fact, I am a huge science fiction nerd. And uh, there you go. I love this movie, Arrival. And really, honestly, I'm stopping at this moment just to kind of gather my thoughts. Because if I don't, I will sit here and I will go off for the next 30 minutes giving you all kinds of exhaustive reasons about all the minutia and tiny bits of this movie and how awesome it is. Lori can tell you, I've probably seen it 10 times. Okay, more than that. I love this movie, but okay, focus. There's this one point in the movie that I want to bring out. There's this hypothesis, hypothesis they talk about in the movie that basically boils down to your mindset and your worldview are heavily influenced by your language. For example, our written language flows from left to right, always left to right. I had to turn around because I want my left and right to match yours. The parts that we have already read those are our past. They're known, they're quantified, they're understood. The part we are reading right now is our present. We're, we're discovering it, we're learning it as it happens. The same way that you're discovering my words as they pop out of my mouth right now, here, now, in the present. And then the stuff off to the right. 
That's the, that's the unknown. You haven't read it yet. It's the future. How could we know it? And so these aliens come along in this movie, and their writing is completely different from ours. It's circular, no beginning, no end. All the information in the, sim- in the sentence is simultaneous and complete. Now, there's a reason for that, and I don't want to mess up the movie for you if you haven't seen it, but really, it's a visually stunning way to look at how different a language can be. And, I, and I, when I think about that, that make-believe language with no beginning, no end, just an all-encompassing completeness and simultaneity where all thoughts are known perfectly and completely all at once, it reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 36, where the Spirit intercedes in our prayers, communicating with wordless groans in a language that is beyond us. No beginning, no end, no past, present, or future, just a simultaneous completeness, perfection in communication. And it also reminds me of my last point. God still speaks in tongues. And I know some of you have just now broken out into hives. Please bear with me. It's undeniable to me that God has worked and is working an actual miracle in my life. It's only through the power of God's Spirit that I can stand before you and say that. The Spirit has changed my language and consequently my mindset and my worldview from one of utter hopelessness, despair, and darkness to one of life and light, one of love, joy, peace, still working on patience, but that's kind of my point. Ten years ago, I couldn't see any of this, but God did. The Spirit did. And there's no way someone with my past should be able to stand here and say, I am right with God. Right now. That's impossible with the depths of my past. But the Spirit of God is inside me. And that Spirit speaks an unknowable, perfect language with no beginning and no end. He sees the future as plainly as I can see you sitting in front of me right now. And his knowledge is simultaneous, complete, and perfect. He is speaking into my soul groans that are beyond description. And because of that, I can address the crowd. I can stand up, I can raise my voice, and I can address the crowd. And I can speak in the language of people who struggle with self-image issues. I can stand up, I can raise my voice, and I can address the crowd, and I can speak in tongues of the people who suffer from perfectionism. I can stand up and I can raise my voice and I can address the crowd and speak in the language of people who feel hopeless when facing the perfection and righteousness of God. Some of you can't speak that language, but I can. And if you suffer from trauma or abuse 
in your past, or even in your present. There are people sitting in this room with us right now who can stand, raise their voice, and they can speak that language because they have the Holy Spirit in them bringing out a brighter future full of life, light, and peace in a way that defies their past and all understanding. And if you're stuck in apathy or doubt, or maybe you just don't even believe God exists, or you're just not real sure, there are people in this room who can speak that language. I can't speak that language. I don't understand it. It's confusing to me. From all the stuff that I've struggled with, I have never, ever really doubted that God exists. That language confuses me. But praise God that we have people here who do speak that language. And if you're sitting here and you're hoping that all of those people who need to hear this sermon are listening, there are people in this room who can speak in the tongue of legalism and self-righteousness. I've met a few of them. I know them personally. God still speaks in tongues. And isn't that a blessing? And isn't it also a blessing that we live in a time and a place where God doesn't feel it's necessary to make big noises and set our heads on fire? I need to wrap this up. I always thought Acts chapter 2 was about Peter's killer sermon and how thousands of people were baptized. And how on earth do I get to that level? But it's not about Peter. And it's not about the sermon. It's not even about those thousands of people. And it certainly isn't about me. It's about Jesus. Hallelujah. And it's about the arrival of the Spirit. Hallelujah. The circle is now complete. Thousands of years in the making. The entire plan of God for our restoration is finally revealed on Pentecost. Hallelujah, praise God. And just as God's plan wasn't fully complete with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's plan for me isn't complete with my death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. The Spirit is working a miracle in me right now. And He's working a miracle in you right now. God can see it in its entirety. Jesus knows about it intimately. And He's standing at the right hand of God, cheering you on. But it's the Spirit that's inside you. And on the daily, actively growing you. And showing you. That that 3D shape you've been living is a mere shadow of the depth and the reality that is God's perfect plan for you in the Spirit. Happy Pentecost.